0: Welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed: Understanding Contemporary Politics, a podcast of the Providence College Political Science Department. My name is William Hudson, Professor Emeritus of Political Science and host of this podcast. Celebrity and politics have forever been intertwined, at least since Roman emperors engraved their images on coins that were traded throughout the empire. Celebrities, medium gossip also has a long political history. I imagine that the Roman Forum must have been an ideal place to trade on the gossip about the lives of the Roman political elite. In our contemporary era, the proliferation of media platforms like social media and cable television seem to have enhanced the role that celebrity and gossip play in our politics. For generations, American citizens have made celebrities of their presidents. But nowadays, they make celebrities into presidents, whether in America or in the Ukraine. A part of understanding politics today demands an inquiry into how celebrity and gossip shape it. Fortunately, at Providence College, we have on our faculty an expert on how both celebrity and gossip shape the modern society and modern politics. With me today is my colleague, Providence College Associate Professor of Communication and Director of the Providence College Communication Program, Andrea McDonald. Professor McDonald has written widely on celebrity and gossip, including her book written, written with Susan J. Douglas, Celebrity, A History of Fame, and a forthcoming volume, Gossip Politic. As listeners may remember, Andrea was a guest on Beyond Your Newsfeed earlier this year, along with our colleague Matt Guardino, to discuss the decline of local news. I'm delighted she is able to be back with us again today. Andrea McDonald, welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed.
1: Thank you so much, Bill. It's great to be back with you.
0: Let's begin with basics here. So, what is celebrity?
1: Well, as you mentioned in the great opening there, We can certainly think about fame as a kind of condition that has existed for centuries, for for many, many years. It's always been possible to have a degree of renown um, in certain circumstances. And money and power, um, especially political power, as you mentioned, have historically been uh, avenues through which people have achieved renown, but One of the things that Susan Douglas and I look at in our book that you mentioned celebrity, uh, a history of fame, is the way in which media technologies have influenced fame and supported a contemporary celebrity culture. Um, So to be a celebrity um, is not just to have fame, um, but to also have a role in influencing culture, to have a kind of public persona, that speaks to where we are in our contemporary moment. Oftentimes, issues that are bubbling up in the popular culture are enacted and made salient through celebrity stories. And media technologies have developed, especially throughout the 20th and into the 21st century, in ways that have made famous people ever more accessible to us. So we can think about early photography Um, being a way in which one's image becomes widely circulated, and and then of course cinema. Um, And cinema is this critical moment, particularly when we get the advent of sound, where we can start to see and hear people and feel as though we get to know them. Um, Richard de Cordova writes about this moment with cinema, where we start to know actors, we start to know famous people, outside of their role as actors and we become interested in their personal lives. And he marks this as a critical transition from actor to star. And we can think about our fascination with the personal lives of famous figures um, as a defining feature of our celebrity culture. And certainly television, radio, and now social and social media and digital culture have brought celebrity ever more um, into our day-to-day lives.
0: Could we dig into that a little more since you're talking about the influence of technology on this phenomena and you mentioned at the start photography in the 19th century. So what might be some examples of photography uh, as a a, a technology that that forwards this kind of uh, influence of celebrity on culture?
1: Yeah, um, I'm fascinated by uh, the carte de visite images of the late 19th century. So um, these were kind of almost like trading cards or baseball cards of public figures, Um, but you could also, over time, it became uh, less uh, financially prohibitive, more accessible to the everyday person to be able to have one's photograph taken and kind of placed on these little calling cards. And so folks would have uh, a photo album as we would know today um, in a hard copy in which you might have carts of friends and family um, mixed in with carts of famous people. Um, Abraham Lincoln was a notable figure um, of whom there were cartes of visites made. And so I think about that interestingly as kind of like an early analog to social media where we might follow famous people Uh, on Facebook, but we also might follow our aunts and uncles. Um, So there's this weird um, mixing of one's personal life and the public sphere um, in that early photography. But then, of course, photography has also been historically used as a means of self-representation. So the objects and poses, the lighting and situations of photography also tend to give us insight into the subjects Um, professional or uh, political standing, their social roles and their gender, et cetera.
0: Yeah, and and individuals use their photographs to make political statements, I presume, right?
1: Absolutely. Um, We can think perhaps um, what comes to mind for me is the royal family in England, uh, the way in which uh, the royal family has over uh, over decades presented themselves in, in family photos sometimes using props and organization of the image in order to appear more regal and other times using it to appear more personal, more relatable, um, more quote unquote ordinary. And we can even think about that in comparison to say, the kardashian christmas card <laughs> which has become a staple of our 21st century media economy where you see famous people organizing their families in a kind of similar way to convey their wealth and status in a photographic form
0: yeah very interesting yeah i know that uh in the 19th century evidently frederick douglas the abolitionist uh leader was was the most photographed person in the 19th century and he seems to have used, and he was, of course, a very dignified-looking uh, uh, man from the time he was very young to he was very elderly, and he seemed to be using that those photographs to convey an image of African Americans that ran counter to the the prejudices of white racists. Mm. Uh, so I, I've always, I always, always thought that was uh, quite intriguing that 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 he he kind of sensed that that he could influence uh, perceptions by just having himself photographed.
1: Yeah, that visual communication, it can become iconographic. So when we see a repeated image of someone, um, particularly in a similar style, wearing a similar mode of dress, um, we can think about this with later social movements that have adopted different forms of dress, knowing that they would appear in the newspaper or on televised news um, and, and that, personal style can be a really strong form of communication and photography um, memorializes that style in an iconic image.
0: Right so and then you said the invention of cinema really ramps this up uh, because now you can uh, see your stars on the screen in maybe fictional uh, 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 movies uh, but then there's a great fascination with the personal lives and And that's really promoted by the studios and the like, right?
1: Absolutely. Um, So the studio system um, during the early days of cinema really had a lot of control over the actor's public image. Um, But the public became so fascinated by film stars that they began kind of pushing for wanting more and more information about those actors and actresses. And so we start to see this relationship between the studios and the press that is a balancing act of control and disclosure. And the early fan magazines like Photoplay and Modern Screen that um, come up in the industry during this period, they really um, both fuel and respond to the public's desire to know about the quote-unquote like insider look of what's going on in Hollywood and what the private lives of celebrities are like. Now of course that narrative is also often highly managed and not necessarily what we think about as real. Um, It's still part of the performance and yet um, we see the tradition of the fan magazine is something that has persisted. you know it still continues although it's it's seen many different iterations and forms we're still fascinated by reading and seeing and hearing about the personal lives of famous folks
0: right and you mentioned the management the the actor Rock Hudson comes to mind uh, a, a man who was came out publicly as gay later in his life but when he's young he's paired with all supposedly romantically with all these starlets and that was of course not happening at all right
1: yes um so lots of times uh we can think about these studio narratives um and even still today we can still think about times where celebrities are romantically linked to co-stars or to other young famous figures we can think about britney spears and justin timberlake we can think about um you know kristen stewart and robert pattinson so um of course, there's a, a special public fascination with romance uh, between on screen and off screen uh, people and whether or not those um, relationships are genuine or a part of the narrative. Sometimes it's hard to discern.
0: was there is there a connection between this fascination with personal lives and their portrayal and politics that is... Uh, Are there instances where these kinds of relationships are are used to uh, influence politics or policy?
1: Yes, so it's easy to look at celebrity culture and think about it as being purely fluff and very trivial and ephemeral. But what fascinates me about it is that um, in attending to celebrity stories, what we can actually see is that I can consider them as a form of human interest story. So these stories may be deeply personal, and yet in attending to them, they're often a politics about them, even if they're not overly political. So just to give some examples, um, we often read and see stories about uh, celebrity relationships, personal relationships. And for instance, right now, we're watching uh, the Johnny Depp, Amber Heard, uh, lawsuit trial going on, and this is all revol- circulating about their personal relationship. And so on the surface, it's just quite tawdry media fodder, but if we dig into it, what's really at stake here are issues of substance abuse, domestic violence, sexual assault, um, gender, and pay in Hollywood. Um, even, even income inequality in a bizarre way, right? Because there's all this information about how his wealth might have fueled um, some of these issues. And so we can think about celebrities as windows into issues like aging, cosmetic surgery, weight, divorce, child rearing. These are personal issues, yes, often domestic, feminized issues. And yet they are part of the texture and fabric of our everyday lives. They have real impact on people. And a lot of times members of the public, we can, we can relate to or see our own experiences through the celebrity news stories that we see going on. So I think it would be wrong to say that these are just personal issues. Um, and they do, I think, uh, reveal much about public sentiment and where we are as a society
0: and could these stories also be very influential for for public attitudes about certain issues i'm thinking about changing attitudes you know beginning in the 60s towards say divorce uh, where you have you know figure like ronald reagan who's achieving political prominence at that time uh who's a divorced man and you know married to a a second wife um and, and at, at some point in American politics, the idea that a politician could be divorced and succeed was, was, was just crazy, that you, you, a divorced person could not succeed in politics. But I would think re- figures like Reagan sort of changed that, right?
1: Absolutely. Um, a lot of times, media, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse, leads the narrative in terms of where the culture is going. And we can see this with divorce, as you mentioned, what springs to mind to me immediately is representations of LGBTQ folks on TV. Um, TV with sometimes uh, some some early representations in the 80s and 90s that were just terrible. Um, You can think about talk show representations, for instance, of trans women, but it's almost like a, a door cracking open and then we start to see more and more diverse representation Um, and that can sometimes be a reflection of where the culture is moving and it can also be uh, a way of pushing the culture forward and we can think about this yeah like you said with issues of divorce i also think about the me too movement perhaps more recently Um, when we think about stories that emerged out of hollywood um, that were not they, those were not the first stories to be told but they were stories that were prominent and therefore helped spark a broader public conversation um about um rape and sexual assault
0: right and you think about the the change in attitudes towards towards gay rights for example uh, uh, i would think ellen DeGeneres generous was a very important figure there right
1: uh, yes um thinking about ellen particularly in daytime talk tv um, which is a space that you know has been really targeted towards um, middle class, middle American women. We can think about Rosie O'Donnell, who at the time was not went, at the height of her talk show was not uh, an out gay woman, but um, has since come out. Um, but certainly, we can also think about a show like Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, the original version in the early mm-hmm. 2000s. You know, which again relied on a lot of stereotypes, but at the same time it brought representations of gay men into reality tv in a way that normalized their presence in that sphere and made um you know straight folks who maybe didn't know didn't have gay friends um feel that they could relate and so um i think media can be an important space for visibility now i think there's a lot of questions around uh, quality versus quantity of representation. Um, there's there's criticism uh, in, in a in a trend that's known as kill your gays, where we see a lot of uh, TV TV shows incorporating gay characters, but then they die, um, and and this disproportionate um, offing of gay characters and queer characters on TV. What does that reveal about our willingness to um, include those represented, representations in substantive and meaningful ways?
0: Right, very interesting. So let's just for a moment, we, we can come back and I'm sure you have a lot more to say about celebrity, but let's let's talk a bit about gossip, which is, I guess, very much linked because uh, we gossip about celebrities. We gossip about a lot of things. Uh, so what exactly is gossip? How does gossip differ from news? Great.
1: Yeah. So gossip in a definitional sense has been considered um, by discourse scholars as talk about a third party who's not co-present. So in a, in a very basic sense, it's, I'm talking with someone else about you and you're not there. Um, the term, if we look at the etymology of the word, actually grows out of the word godsib, um, which was a name for a godparent. And if we think about a godparent, this is someone who's privy to the goings on of a family, but not necessarily a family member. Um, and over time, the word starts to gain a feminine connotation. So it was women who gossip, gossip about housework, gossip about child rearing. Um, Gossip about scandal and another form of gossip, which is known as bitching, (laughs) complaining about what's going on. And scholars have theorized that gossip has been a way for women to express themselves, um, oftentimes in the domestic sphere or in women's spaces. So in the washroom, in the kitchen, in the ladies room, uh, you know, the ladies restroom that it's been a way for women to, to vent, to empathize, to bond with other women. Now, of course, men gossip too, but a lot of times we don't characterize male speech as gossip um, because gossip is so strongly linked with women. But um, we see gossip around celebrities, of course, most of us gossip about celebrity lives, and we don't know celebrities, we've never met them but we can certainly also gossip about sports players, politicians, um, and increasingly the rise of punditry in uh, political speech can be thought of as a form of gossip that, you know, it's opinion, um, it's editorialization rather than reporting on news um, per se. So I think we've seen, uh, we're in a moment where speech online um, in particular is very opinion driven, but that is not to say that it is inconsequential. In fact, some of the most influential speech in politics is now occurring in those types of spaces um, with political opinion being expressed in a kind of gossipy or celebrity focused way. Um, And so we've really seen this blending and blurring to my mind of what is news? What is gossip? What is speculation? What is true? And of course, the presidency of Donald Trump um, certainly added fuel to that kind of uh, dynamic.
0: Yeah, but the, the blurring of gossip and news certainly goes way back. I mean, that uh, I'm old, old enough to remember uh, this uh, character, Walter Winchell, who was a, a gossip columnist uh, back in the, I guess his career probably started in the 30s, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Winchell. But. But he was writing a column, I think, up through the '60s, mm-hmm. um, and I was always intrigued. I, I, thinking about this podcast today, I was thinking about wa- Walter Winchell, the gossip columnist, who always portrayed himself as a news reporter. Uh, he he would uh, he would wear a hat, kind of askew, like he was a, a news hound from the right out of the the movie The Front Page, uh, and so. Uh, because he had also radio shows, and I think eventually a TV show for a while, uh, and he'd always he would always say what he was talking about was the news. Uh, uh, so, uh, so 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 how, how does how does he how did he get away with that? How do you get away with uh, basically purveying what you're calling gossip, but saying no, it's really this is news that should matter to you all.
1: Yeah, I guess it raises questions that um, myself and uh, the contributors to the book that I'm working on right now, A Gossip Politic, we're aiming to explore this very point. Um, what is the difference between talk that we can understand as news, talk on radio, talk on television, as with Winchell? We can also think about a figure like Hedda Hopper. Um, and, and Liz Smith, the famous gossip columnist, um, once said that uh, uh, g- uh, gossip is just news running ahead of itself in a red dress, um, <laughs> that, that uh, you know, uh, uh, some of the contributors in the book are writing about how um, news frames itself in particular ways and uses particular strategies, visual strategies, um, organizational, discursive, rhetorical strategies to make itself um, serious, to make itself read, quote-unquote, as news. Um, but in fact, news is a form of talk. Um, the, the way in which we perform news is different than the way in which we perform gossip, but there are lots of similarities. And if we, if we consider, um, you know, talk about what's going on, gossip um, is very much about wanting to know something before other people do. And the immediacy of news, the breaking nature of news, if you will, um, is also very much about that, trying to get the story first. The immediacy, especially now, that we expect from news in many ways mirrors the desire to know and the desire to know, de- desire to know first. Um, so if we think about TV news, for instance, there are lots of different ways in which TV news is organized, whether it be the studio set, the way in which the presenters dress the order that the show is presented in that indicate to the viewer this is news and this is newsworthy. Um, gossip shares those features but presents itself often in a more informal, casual, and chatty way um, so that even though what may be presented is also newsy or newsworthy, the style is often a bit different.
0: Yeah. I- I would imagine that podcasting has uh, really been a a very important phenomena for purveying gossip uh, that is about the news, Uh, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, just like we're doing here today, Bill, (laughs) (laughs) there's an element of chatting. And if we think about chatting as a function of gossip, um, part of what folks are doing in podcasting is giving opinion and ruminating editorializing um and having a bit of fun with it really at times as well so um yeah podcasting um and also you know but but even even seeping into more traditional news i think about watching cnn for instance and when you have a 20-minute segment of pundits talking about their opinion um it, how, how much of that is really newsworthy or news in, a, in right. a formal sense and how much of it could be considered a form of talk that mirrors gossip.
0: Yeah. Certainly a lot of podcasts, and I guess on uh, cable TV as well, the, the speakers often will be talking about a serious political topic and, and suddenly they're going to talk about, well, well, the, the gossip is, or I've heard that this is really, really what was going on behind the scenes. And that certainly emerges all the time. If you listen to politically oriented uh podcasts it's not the kind of thing that shows up on the evening news right television right
1: right if we think about something like world news tonight which i believe is still the top rated news broadcast um on abc with david muir um that is not a space in which we see pundit commentary right it's This is what's happening and then it it zips on to the next story um in some ways i can consider that more of a a kind of traditional broadcast in which the stories are reported and then and it's also quite brief compared to the 24-hour um nature of cable news today so if we think about world news tonight it's only a half an hour broadcast and maybe 10 minutes are commercial so it's really it's really quite brief and to the point where When we see more cable news which has a desire to fill airtime and need to constantly create content we see more speculation and more commentary um, that fills in the spaces where there's no breaking news
0: so so what what's your opinion given this blurring of news and gossip what impact is that having on our politics on on public opinion the way people think about politics if if what they're hearing is is some straight news but all this gossip in the background mm-hmm.
1: yeah i think the diffusion of news and the blurring of news and opinion has been a contributing force i w- would not certainly say the only force but a contributing force in the public attitudes towards truthfulness in the news and uh, um, the public's ability to figure out where to turn for reliable information. Because so much of what we see, whether it's in the opinion pages of the New York Times or on Twitter or you know on, on uh, cable news, is opinion um, presented as news and presented in a traditional news format. Um, so how do we make a distinction between something like that and a podcast or a blog um, or an Instagram page? Uh, or a TikTok video, I think it starts to become challenging for people, even people who are media literate, who care about politics, who care about civic engagement. Where do I go when I want factual information? Where do I go when I wanna find news? And how do I I, um, fact check or try to understand uh, the quality and the nature of what I'm hearing? Um, A lot of times we hear opinion about what's going on before we even hear what it is that's happening. And that can lead to a kind of social dynamic in which speculation becomes just as significant as fact. And I think that's what led some to think about this kind of post-truth moment in recent years where the question of truth is kind of up for grabs in a way that hasn't been in recent memory.
0: Yeah, that, that's very interesting. I mean, we all have experience with gossip. Uh, we all gossip. And and one of the things, I guess, based on my own experience of gossip, is that is that you learn very early to be skeptical of what you hear in gossip. When you're being told something about someone, you say, well, is that really true? On the other hand, gossip is also insider information, that there's a sense in which you think, golly, this gossip is telling me something that, that uh, isn't, isn't known generally, but it may in fact be the real truth. So it really makes understanding what is true very complicated. And if there's more gossip in our portrayal of political events, then this you know, lack of firm idea of what's true is, is a real problem.
1: Yeah, and I would argue that celebrity culture and in, in, in how it relates to politics has even furthered that. So let me give you an example. So thinking about um, specifically how we've seen this kind of cross-pollination between celebrity culture and politics. So as you mentioned in the opening, politicians have always had a, a degree of fame and have even been celebrified, particularly if we think about like Ronald Reagan or Bill Clinton et cetera. Um, but we've seen really over the last couple of decades, increasingly celebrities moving into politics. So if we think about someone like Arnold Schwarzenegger, for instance, or we can think about like Bolsonaro in Brazil, um, Zelensky in the Ukraine, figures who are already in the public eye in a more entertainment-based capacity moving into politics. And then we've also seen politicians moving into celebrity spheres, right? Um, uh, Harry and Meghan in the UK Mm -hmm. um, and now moving to California. They have their, um, I think they're working with Netflix. We have the Obamas writing multiple books. Um, And of course we have Donald Trump, who's kind of walked this line back and forth between the spheres of celebrity and politics um, throughout his life. So that too, right? So when celebrity and politics cannot be disentangled and gossip and speculation and news start to come together, um, the kinds of of reading practices that we use to interpret politics start to get mixed up with the reading practices, I argue, that um, we use with gossip. And if in gossip, like you said, we're not really sure sometimes what's true and what's not. And so that kind of sense of judgment and speculation and uncertainty has has crept i feel into the way in which we navigate more traditional news
0: yeah from what you just said it made me think of donald trump and his his presentations his performances his speeches which are very gossip-like in in his in the way he he makes his his presentation he'll He makes these statements where he says, people are saying, which is, I think, a classic gossip phrase, right? Totally. People people say, people down the hall say that, right? And that that he does that all the time.
1: Yes. So I actually conducted a study of Donald Trump's Twitter usage during his campaign against Hillary Clinton and found that Trump did, in fact, use a lot of these strategies. Um, He used the idea of... As you say, people are saying gossip and rumor, also accusing other people of being liars, um, but also using exaggeration and exclamations, which are features of gossip. So you heavy use of the exclamation point. And the Have
0: all- you heard? Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the all caps, you know, um, sort of screaming at you in in a way online. Um, and the bombast of his uh, rhetoric at campaign events, et cetera, much more aligned, you know, and people have associated this with a populist style, but also highly aligned with gossip techniques of um, speculation, emotional appeal, which is often associated with gossip over news. News is supposed to be rational, serious. Um, it's supposed to be down to earth, whereas gossip is emotional. It's um you know it's it's personality driven. And so yeah, we can think about it as as a kind of populist performance, but we can also think about it as being an extension of Trump's um, historical existence within celebrity culture and within the gossip press, he's well aware of the techniques of um, like the New York Post um, has has allegedly um, acted as his own PR rep and called <laughs> different newspapers and gossip papers and made reports about himself during the 80s and 90s um so so we can certainly think of him as a gossip figure um and 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 some have dubbed him like the gossip president
0: right Uh, and have we had a trump effect in our politics Are, are we going to live now in a political culture where trump has kind of established certain norms that other politicians are going to pick up on have you seen evidence of that
1: yeah, I think that he showed that the political rules could, in, at least in certain circumstances, rules about decorum and uh, the way you treat the press, the way you present yourself, that had been historically like unbreakable because one would be punished um, politically for breaking them. Um, that at least for him, at least in certain circumstances, they could be broken, not only without consequence, but actually with reward. Now, it's yet to be seen whether in American politics that formula will work for someone other than Donald Trump. But what we have seen is that his acolytes and sort of people who have taken up the Trump, um, you know, support, and have also kind of extended that and um, even even pushed past that in sort of these like neo right-wing movements um, and representations are, if not drawing from the same playbook, um, they're well aware that those norms have now been broken and, and are willing to push the envelope um, in terms of self-presentation i'm thinking of like a marjorie taylor green right? right um and and willingness to uh, eschew the traditional standards because we've seen that now we can we've moved away from that i don't think that that is going to be easy to put back together i think that it's sort of like the genie's out of the bottle where do we go from here um joe biden represents a kind of move away from that back towards a more traditional direction but i think a lot of folks fear that the midterms that are coming up and the 2024 election are going to be a critical turning point because biden seems like sort of a stopgap. and what happens after biden um it's sort of a scary prospect to think about
0: right yeah to to go back to the paper you wrote uh, which i read which was very interesting about uh, the Twitter feeds of Clinton and, and Trump in the 2016 campaign. And one of the things that struck me by your analysis was you you des- described Trump's exclamatory uh, style and the like, as opposed to Clinton. And uh, in the examples you give in the paper of Clinton's tweets, they do sound like they were manufactured by a campaign team. They're very boring and uh, very sort of straightforward and uh, you can see how at least on, on Twitter, uh, if you had to choose who am I going to follow, it's not going to be Clinton. It's going to be Trump, right? And, and other politicians must must be aware of that.
1: Yeah, So you know, social media is this interesting sphere where our attention is constantly being pulled. And when we look in that space, our uh, people's attention is going to be pulled by those who have the most kind of uh, maybe titillating things to say or say it in the loudest way. Um, We're talking about clickbait and headlines and and things that sound bites that are going to get attention. Um, It's a kind of bite sized news environment. And so, yeah, you're right. Like Hillary Clinton's tweets tended to try very hard to walk this fine line between being um, approachable and being serious. And in doing so, they seemed very uh, careful. Uh, Trump's tweets were nothing uh, near yeah. careful, right? They, they now, now, it's not to say that Clinton had a team and Trump didn't. Um, one of the things that's interesting about celebrity culture is that, and, and political culture, right? I think the public has an idea that these people have PR teams and they have communication specialists who create this content for them and yet Trump made such a big discursive uh, push to tell people all the time that they were getting the real him and that everyone else was fake that I think it's easy to interpret Trump's tweets as being his own genuine off-the-cuff tweets that you know pundits said, oh, he like wrote this on the toilet in the morning, whereas Clinton's tweets seem like, oh, someone spent five hours thinking about when we were going to post this and what we were going to say. But I would say that there's a very good chance that Trump's tweets were also, at least in part, manufactured um, or com- at least composed. Um, but you know, he would he would have typos sometimes. And all these exclamation points which made him seem quote-unquote authentic in a way that hillary clinton just couldn't create that kind of sense about her because she seemed so careful
0: yeah but but a campaign manager could plan that right totally right absolutely which really gets us back to you know what's true can you you can't trust the authenticity of of anyone there's a there's a phrase in, and this came out, out of your your work on the gossip politic. Uh, you say that the line between politician and celebrity has dissolved, which maybe gets us to the heart of the matter. And I I was when I read that I, I really thought about Zelensky, uh, who who was a a television personality, a comedian. Uh, he had a He had a show in Ukraine where he played the president of Ukraine, uh, and then he became the president of Ukraine. Uh, And now uh, in this war, uh, uh, it it seems that he's really drawing on his celebrity persona and how he's portraying himself as a war leader. And and drawing on, uh, it's as though he's trying to channel Churchill in many ways and and it, I think it, it seems to be very quite self-conscious. Do you agree with that?
1: Yeah, I think that certainly he would have an awareness from his previous role, um, his previous public performances of the importance of image. I think it's hard to say what's going through his mind, but I can say that I've seen many, a number of news stories covering him saying talking about his appearance, um, talking about how much he, quote unquote, like looks like a a leader, looks like a a figure that will be able to lead his country through this, um, to be an inspiration to his people. And, you know, even talking about how handsome he is. And uh, some of those stories did give me pause to think, you know, how are we framing this? How are we covering this? This is, you know, this is an atrocity this is a terrible situation. And, you know, we're talking about how handsome the president of Ukraine is, you know? So um, I think it's another example where we see this kind of, um, this kind of blending and blurring of those worlds. Um, but, you know, how did he get elected in the first place? It speaks to the trust that if we have celebrities as public figures and the public feels akin to them identifies with them, comes to trust them, that even though they may have no um, uh, political background or legislative experience, that the public may feel that the personal, uh, their personal qualities are enough to want to place them into the highest office in the land. Um, that speaks to the power of personality.
0: Right. Uh, and, and that was really Trump's appeal, right? Trump said, only I can f- fix it, right? And so so he's really playing his role on The Apprentice, where he's the the uh, complete dominant figure and saying, now I'm going to become president, and I'll be just like I was on the TV show. Yeah. And, I, and I know, I know, I've read some of the coverage of of his supporters being interviewed, and, and they're saying, well, they voted for him because they liked The Apprentice, and... And that, that's a, a very odd direction for politics to take. That, that's, that's how people make their political decisions.
1: Yes, I mean, Trump said over and over that he was not a politician um, and that he was a businessman. Now, um, he was an arguably unsuccessful businessman, right. but he played a successful businessman on TV. And there were a number of articles that came out um, that were writing about how the apprentice, uh, you know, took the, took the stand saying the apprentice made Donald Trump president. And I actually think that fundamentally that that's true. That numerous seasons over the course of many years, there was a carefully scripted narrative that was beamed into the living rooms of millions of Americans in which Trump appeared powerful, riding in his helicopter. He appeared to dominate the New York City landscape, you know the most important financial city in the country, arguably one of the most in the world. Um, he had the power to make important decisions, to fire people. Um, his, his family and his team were presented as being the utmost uh, successful in, in, in the business world. And of course, all of that was scripted. All of it was um, <laughs> shown to be a kind of a hot mess, really, from the reports of what was going on on the set of that show. Um, and at the same time, he enhanced his fame tremendously through that. And so when then, you know, a decade or so later, he appears on the public stage, people thought of him as his character. Um, and yeah. I think that's that's a fundamental way in which folks related to him and felt that they could know and trust him.
0: Yeah. And Zelensky, Zelensky seemed to follow the same playbook, actually. I mean, that almost even more blatantly that. That he plays a president on TV and then yeah. he runs for office and uh, and the like. Uh, though I'm not trying to equate Trump and Zelensky sure. uh, at all, but but it's very 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 interesting. So you're suggesting we're likely to see more of this, uh, more celebrities uh, stepping in and uh, becoming politicians. And
1: I think we've seen that already on a global stage, um, and we, we you know we've seen. Um, uh, different figures internationally who have emerged, um, some successful in securing offices and others not. Um, but uh, we, we've seen that pu- people who already have public visibility um, have an easier time transitioning into um, you know, that kind of role because the public has, has a level of comfort with them and feels that they know them, whether or not they are qualified. Um, I think we'll, we will continue to see that and I think we'll also continue to see the counterpart to that where politicians are increasingly uh, performing in celebrified spaces in ways that we didn't traditionally see.
0: Right. Uh, so let me ask you the political science question here. Who benefits from this kind of politics? Who, who, who's going to be hurt mm. by this kind of politics?
1: Well, I think that I, I think that it benefits the people who want to have power and already have a public platform. Um, I don't think that it necessarily benefits citizens um, because I think what we've seen both in the United States and globally is that just because someone is good at performing their persona doesn't mean, that they're going to be effective in a position of power. Doesn't mean that they're gonna be um, considerate of norms and values. Doesn't mean that they're going to understand how to run a government or to, you know, address uh, crises as they emerge. That's something that's been particularly striking to me. Um, You know, how do we address crises if we're constantly in, in a state of flux because traditional norms and practices have not been followed. Um, so there's a way in which it can be, I, I think of it as a bit destabilizing. Um, it also, I think, uh, it, pl- it takes value away from a f- uh, effective leadership and effective um, legislative capacity and shifts that value onto image. And I don't know that that's necessarily beneficial in a democratic sense, um, you know, uh, for, for, for leadership, right? If, if what we care about most is communicative style and image, um, I think that actually is a little bit dangerous. It opens the door for some, not to say that all of these actors are nefarious, but I think it opens the door for, for someone with high level of visibility um, and, and perhaps not the best intentions.
0: And it seems to me it would put a disadvantage of the sort of competent traditional politician who is pretty effective at getting things done, who, who can push the legislation along, is going to be ignored or dismissed. I personally think that may be part of Biden's problem, that, that his unpopularity uh, may stem. It, and it's quite ironic. I think, in a way, he was elected because he was the anti-Trump. He was kind of the boring, normal politician, but as president, that's really worked to his disadvantage, in that he's the boring politician who's working on trying to get some legislation passed, uh, making the sausage, which is never pretty. Uh, but he's not <coughs> glamorous. He's not a celebrity. He doesn't. He doesn't uh, 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 talk in the way that 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 is interesting or exciting.
1: Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I remember watching. Donald Trump um, in the Republican primaries leading up to his election. And I remember thinking, you know, oh, could he possibly be chosen, but also that he was certainly gaining the most attention and occupying the most space in the room, um, the most taking up the most airtime, you know, traditional politicians don't necessarily perform in that way, have not historically, you know, like Biden does not perform in that way. I think also about um, President Obama, who was active, um, you know, working to create legislation, but not, but uh, criticized for not uh, being able to communicate his effectiveness with the public in a way that kind of quote unquote like sold it. And I think uh, Biden and Democrats more broadly have been, you know, criticized for having this issue where even when good things get done that they're not able to promote it effectively in part because their communicative style is more traditional and, and a little bit more low key you know whereas like if you have someone with with a big megaphone and someone who's willing to continue to create you know messaging that's dramatic that's exclamatory sometimes inflammatory that that's going to get a lot of attention whether or not there's anything going on below the surface to um, back that up. And it's almost like a, a a politics of talk rather than action.
0: Right. And a very scary uh, prospect, given the serious problems facing the country right now. Uh, and I'm thinking, above all, we just did a podcast on climate change and mm-hmm. how you're going to be able to address that uh, if this is going to be the the context of our politics um, th- this podcast is called beyond your news feed and uh, I would like to go beyond some recent news and while you're here we've talked about Twitter uh, the recent news is that Elon Musk has evidently acquired Twitter he's going to be running Twitter as a private company it's he's going to be it's going to be like his his platform Elon Musk's Twitter uh, what's what do you think of that what what's going to happen
1: i was thinking of you bill because this actually as this has been un- unfolding over the last few weeks i've been thinking about our previous podcast with professor gordino about the fate of local news and uh, it also is related to our discussion today about celebrity culture in that you know in some ways we have our own uh, kind of idols of production these days to use leo lowenthal's term we have these titans of industry like jeff bezos and elon musk and peter thiel who are coming into spaces that are news platforms some traditional like the washington post and some like social media such as twitter and really trying to control the narrative or there's a there's a fear at least that in purchasing these platforms that there's a freedom of speech issue that's at stake here and we see these people with outsized um money and therefore power. And even though they might not be directly involved in politics, um, you know, Peter Thiel certainly is, but someone like Elon Musk kind of circulating around the edges of that. But there is a politics again about that, because his purchase of Twitter um, has seen, you know, judging by what I'm reading people's responses to this has caused real anxiety about what's going to happen to the platform, um, which has been a site for you know, anybody basically to come on and be able to voice their opinions about, you know, anything from sports teams to uh, policy positions. And um, so so they are people like Elon Musk. They are celebrities. Um, They're public uh, figures. And, you know, I think it says something about where we are as a society that people who are extremely wealthy um, and these people are some of the wealthiest folks in the world have become celebrities by virtue of their wealth. I think people, yeah, we care that he's an inventor, but most people are really like awed by his wealth. And when we're thinking about these, these tech people um, who have billions and billions of dollars, that it, it's just kind of stunning to think that that is, is an entry point for fame. And as we've just discussed, fame as an entry point for um, political power. So there seems to be a move in that direction as well.
0: Yeah, and uh, t- given the, the prominence of Twitter in our discourse, uh, he could, it, it, depending on how he uses it, but he, he could use it uh, in, in ways that are pretty, uh, pretty destructive. Uh, uh,
1: Some have speculated that he will use it to reinstate Donald Trump's account. I don't know, but that's based on that right. speculation. Yeah. Um, but of course, we know that Trump had his account pulled, and there was some speculation about where right. where Trump's followers would move in terms of what platform they would be using after that that occurred. Um, but there was also um, uh, uh, criticism of uh, oh, what's what's the man who had had created Twitter. Now his name is slipping my mind. I uh, um, just
0: read it in the paper this morning, and I can't remember.
1: Okay, but in any case, there was there. You know there even even though it's not Elon Musk, but like there had been criticism of uh, him as well for not pulling Trump's account sooner when he was president and he was using it to say, um, you know, to make racist comments and to stoke political division. So, you know, who has the ability to speak on these platforms? What people have the ability to say? Um, this goes back to that question of cancel culture that has now um, become a, a, a dominant mode of, of, concern for some in some circles um, in political talk um, and and who who gets to control the narrative who gets to say what's true um, and can I shut you down from saying something I don't like just because I have enough money to control the platform that's that's a deeply um, troubling threat to democracy I think that if I don't right. like what you say um, and I simply own it well then I can make sure that you don't say it
0: right elon musk claims that that he's he's done this he's taken over twitter because he wants to make it freer it's all all about free speech but you know i I have to be skeptical uh that might depend upon uh what end up ends up being said on twitter and the like right and uh and what what kind of speech uh gets magnified and and do we want an individual like Elon Musk uh, to do that. Um, I I don't know a whole lot about Musk, but some of the things I've read about Musk, he seems like a very strange character. Uh, perhaps not the person I would want to trust, you know, uh, to control my life.
1: <laughs> yeah, when we think about social media, I think it's important to think about the algorithms that guide what content is pushed to us. And these are different across social media platforms, but algorithms are created by humans and um, can be shaped in various different ways. And so even if Elon Musk or any of these other, um, you know, uh, figures in these spheres who these owners are not necessarily shutting down speech, that is not even necessarily uh, the only way in which control can be exerted right So pushing content or pushing advertising um, uh, messaging or um, you know sort of uh, lowering the visibility of other content can also be a way of a powerful way of controlling the narrative um, And so just because he may not very well uh, just you know exert, uh, uh, formal control or, uh, you know, uh, direct control it is not to say that those platforms are neutral.
0: Yeah. I could imagine him favoring algorithms that promote, uh, trips to Mars, <laughs> which seems to be one of his great, uh, aspirations, uh, mm-hmm. or, tr- or promotes, I mean, more seriously, the privatization of space travel generally, because oh, yeah. he's got a space c- company and, uh, or the, Investment of resources in in those kinds of things, as opposed maybe to investing in uh, renewable energy. Uh, anyway, but I and I, th- I think you're right. It's the, the danger is more. Uh, he he, could, he can say that he wants to make the platform free, you know, let Donald Trump back, let anybody on the platform, but at the same time, uh, certain kind of content might be pushed. Uh, in a certain way based upon his preferences
1: we also saw um with the you know throughout the the last decade that freedom in these spheres in, in other words as you mentioned freedom for anybody to have an account or freedom in this kind of sense that it's just open and a free-for-all um also can present challenges so we saw during Uh, the Donald Trump Hillary Clinton campaign, the amount of bots that were occupying accounts on Twitter, um, that there were these accounts that were pushing content with specific messaging, and that then people were going ahead because it was being pushed, um, that it was being shared widely in some instances. And so in some sense that that was able to happen because we were having accounts on these platforms that were not necessarily real people quote you know quote unquote real people like just you know um you know rick down the block has has an account no we would have an account you know we'd have a, a computerized uh uh presence that then creates numerous numerous accounts so that is all to say that we can also imagine ways in which complete deregulation is not necessarily in service of the public good
0: Right. Well, this has been a very interesting conversation. We've covered a lot of territory, Andrea. Before we go, however, uh, I want to give you a chance. You're the director of the communications program at Providence College. Our listeners might be interested in in that. It's a brand new program. Uh, It's just started this year, and you were brought on as the first director. Our listeners might be interested in in that program and what's involved. And I, I presume a lot of the the courses you teach touch on the things we talked about today.
1: Absolutely. Very excited to be part of the development of the new communication minor here at PC. Uh, We currently have 33 students in the program from across many different majors and looking forward to welcoming more next year. Uh, It's a seven-course minor, including courses in uh, oral communication, visual communication, um, also thinking about public speaking and uh, rhetoric and, uh, and, and also our media economy. So I currently am teaching the gateway course in communication and uh, that is available to anyone who's interested. You don't have to be a minor to take the gateway course. And I'm excited to also be teaching the politics of visual culture next year in the political science department here. So um, please, anyone who's interested in communication at Providence, please feel free to reach out to me i'd I'd love to talk with you more
0: and i would think this minor would be very of interest to a variety of different majors political science majors or uh, some people in in business even uh, who might be interested in uh, the communications field this would be a a really interesting option for them
1: absolutely so we have students from political science computer science marketing management english art Uh, so I can really see many different ways in which uh, the minor would complement uh, whatever it is that you're doing in your major uh, because communication is so much a part of so many fields today.
0: Okay. Well, thank you very much, Professor McDonald. As I said, this was an interesting conversation and I learned a lot and I'm and, uh, very happy that you're here at Providence College and bringing this knowledge uh, to us. And once again, I want to thank our intrepid uh, podcast producers, Isabel Fernandes and Sienna Strickland, for their work in producing this podcast. Thanks also to the Marketing and Communications uh, Department of Providence College, Joe Carr and Chris Judge, who continue to provide their support. And thanks as well uh, to all our listeners. Please tell four friends about Beyond Your Newsfeed.